production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Dr. Zach Bush is a physician specialising in internal medicine, endocrinology and hospice care. Zach believes applying the rigour of science, strength of humanity and the intelligence of nature will transform not only our health but our world. Zach says our bodies are engineered to be health machines. Regardless of how desperate current public health remains, there is hope for each of us, our nation and the planet at large. This conversation traverses many realms, the fear paradigm and how it affects our health, the importance of aligning with nature at all levels and why death is not the end of life, but a part of it. Ultimately, the prayer that we could all utter today is I am willing. I am here, I am willing. I'm willing to be me. I'm willing to vibrate at my highest vibration. And if you're really willing to do that, you're gonna have to let go of the facade that you've put up of who you are. You're gonna have to let go of the facade of relationships that aren't good for you, that are codependent for you. You're gonna have to really let go of what it is that you've built for yourself. And you're gonna have to allow that deconstruction to start to happen so that you can be you. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Zach Bush is the creator of Iron, a microbiome support that defends against toxins, sparks cellular connection and builds foundational gut health. In its essence, this conversation is about the challenge of sense-making amidst the noise of the world and how we can live healthy, purpose-filled lives. My hope is that this conversation inspires you to think more deeply and take your own form of action, because one person really can make a difference. Zach Bush, for 17 years you grew up in academic medicine. Can you tell us a bit about that journey? Ooh, yeah. Uh, I think everybody enters medicine with a pretty excited state of uh, altruism and, and a desire to have a positive impact on human health and to be able to be in that hallowed space of a crisis point in human's history, um, be it an acute illness or a death, to be in and amongst that human experience, I think, is what draws people to medicine, to have that uh, that real validity baked into your day-to-day basis where you feel like you're having this positive impact. So that's certainly where I entered the space. I got interested in medicine through uh, my work in the Philippines. I had been going into an engineering program uh, at the University of Colorado and then uh, through a series of, of personal events, broke up, had a girlfriend break up with me and 
as dramatic as you can be when you're 19 years old. You're like, I have to take time out of my life to figure out who I am and all of this. So I took a year off and went over to the Philippines and worked for six months with a group of international midwives there uh, that included my aunt and got to see the miracle of life on a whole different scale and got to birth babies for six months there. And was really involved in a lot of the postnatal screening uh, for disease and things like this in these children. And it was so transformative to my life to see the, the unexplicable happening on a daily basis, the unexplicable miracle of a child emerging all the way to the unexplicable nurture of a woman that is birthing children in the squats of the Philippines, these you know dirt-floored tin shacks. Uh, pouring rain in the monsoon or, or they're just covered in mud everything's muddy and to see resilience and the human spirit and unconditional love um, being displayed in these spaces of what from the western medical or western civilization mindset is abject poverty seeing this real sense of hope and and uh, desire to be alive this drive for life this drive for improving oneself and improving the conditions of your family and everything else was so evident at this seemingly base human experience. And so that was what drew me in. And over the next 17 years, that got drilled out of me. I really started to lose the soul of why I had showed up there in some ways as I became more and more specialized. I ended up with a couple of subspecialties in medicine, the first one in internal medicine, which is kind of hospital care and the kind of foundation of cardiology and pulmonology and all the subspecialties in medicine. So I did internal medicine, became a chief resident uh, on a faculty year at the University of Virginia after internal medicine three years, and then went on to an endocrinology and metabolism fellowship, really studying the ways in which our complex systems of our body communicate between the brain and the organs and how we do this incredible symphonic dance of life every day within our bodies. And I, I think that's where my my sense of miracle started to come back in. But every time I kind of had an opportunity to express my creative you know, thought process or an excitement about life, it seemed to be you know, in some ways dampened by the reality of writing grants and trying to fit into a pharmaceutical model and trying to find money for my curiosity and constantly trying to prove that, you know, a new idea was worthwhile or whatever it was. And that ultimately got me to a point where I suddenly realized that I was more a part of an economic machine than I was part of a, a human health machine. And uh, that was kind of my long arcing journey through it. And at that point, I was really indebted. I had $200,000 of school debt and I had, you know, you know, two kids that were, you know, heading into high school and looking at paying for college soon. And just a, this really intense sense of uh, being trapped in a system. I, I didn't have enough money to, to pay off school loans and my kids' college and everything else. And I more importantly lost track of why I had done the 17 year journey through uh, all of that medical work and medical training and all the rest. And so uh, I think for me, it was, you know, the opening and closing of a chapter of trying to step into a pre pre-subscribed identity of what a physician is. And uh, when I left academia in 2010, it was definitely a death and rebirth process of at least my own expectations of what it would be to be a physician. You got quite depressed at a stage when you were working in academic medicine. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, I had been you know very familiar with depression clinically. I certainly had a lot of patients with it, and I'd 
had many family members, you know, uh, that I worked with and helped through different, you know, processes. And it was an intense, you know, reality of, you know, depression that I'd seen from the provider or, you know, family member side. But when it started to happen to me, I doubted that it was real for quite a while. It was, it was slow in onset and, um, it happened through ultimately isolation. So uh, as you get go higher and higher in the academic or professional circles, bizarrely, you tend to get more and more isolated. Uh, you would think that your success would be mapped to more and more interconnectivity and more and more, you know, creative thought. But in the end, academia has unfortunately found itself in a situation where it, it tends to super isolate you. And you become almost victim to your own success as, as you climb this ladder and more and more competition rather than collaboration starts to become your reality. And depression is really the onset of numbness uh, from that isolation as your human senses start to be uh, defined or only stimulated by your own experience or your own sense of of the immediate world around you through your five or six senses as you want to count them. But as you're starting to experience that world in a more and more inclusive fashion or, or exclusive, I guess, excluding others from your experience, there's this danger in, in the numbness where your brain starts to, to forget why or what pleasure in life feels like or the joy or really the essence of, of being a vital force within the, within the community. And so that isolation was tough, um, but I was certainly not as affected as you know, many others have struggled with depression in the sense that it it really triggered my my transformation event early on. So I had gotten into the process of some passive suicidality of thinking like, wow, wouldn't it be good to die because I don't have anything left to contribute to humanity and kind of these thoughts of like, I'm, not, I'm kind of useless, you know, everybody would be better off without me. I'm just taking up air that somebody else could breathe. You know, you think these really self-deprecating thoughts in the midst of depression and you can't find any, any real sense of drive or validity within yourself uh, for that, that period of time as you're dealing with these neurochemical shifts. And ultimately I think it's a disconnect from, from your soul path. Mm -hmm. And for me, it finally took me off that academic path onto that soul journey and uh, left the hospital and academic setting in 2010. And uh, that, that, doorway opened through my kind of desperate call out to God and the universe of like, show me a path. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm stuck. I'm at a dead end. I'm buried in debt. I don't know what to do. I don't feel like I'm purposeful. I don't think what I'm doing is actually moving my, the health of my patients forward. And it's certainly undermining my own health. And so I was starting to just make these meditative or maybe just, you know, desperate screams more than meditative experiences out to the universe of like, show me a path, show me my way, show me the path. Let me be a service to, to humanity. And uh, with enough of those cries, you know, answers started to come flooding in. And in 2010, I had a very dramatic, you know, flooding experience of like, oh my gosh, here's this other path I could take. And it was a little daunting because it included, you know, going to start a bunch of companies. And I was not, didn't consider myself a business person, didn't have the first clue on how to start a company, didn't know what that would mean, and uh, walked away from the vision and tried to get myself back into academia and try to really commit, recommit myself and pull myself up by the bootstraps. And certainly my family members that I told about the vision were like, wow, that sounds really blue sky and out there. You should, you know, stick with it. You're doing a good job. Obviously, you're you're groomed to be the chair of medicine or something. Like keep going on in academia, 
And so I think we have this strange way of reassuring each other in our desperate states of depression. And we end up palliating each other by being like, oh, everybody feels like that. Everybody's depressed. And in hindsight, man, we should really pay attention to one another. And when somebody says, I'm super depressed, I feel like I don't have purpose, we should come around that person and say, well, as a community, can we be enough of a mirror to you to find your path forward so that we can merge your your sense of soul purpose back with your your daily reality that you've created for yourself in your effort to be full of duty and you know, responsibility and walk your path? But nobody ultimately, you know, often comes alongside of you to tell you those things. I think you have to get to this bottom point oftentimes where there's no more doors open before you're ready to do that rebirth. Uh, The prayer that you say is one that I've said many times before as well. And what I find interesting about you is you obviously are a doctor, as we're discussing at the moment, but meditation and prayer are not the the -the run-of-the-mill things that doctors usually live by or or use within their own practice. Why did that become such an important part of your life? I think I was blessed to be raised in uh, a family that um, at least held that door open for me to explore my own spirituality at a young age. So um, I think I had a sense of, you know, divine force in my life at a pretty young age. I, you know, had... Uh, my parents had taken, you know, some pretty dramatic changes in their lives to, to become who they did. They they were stepping out of a post-World War II generation of, you know, duty, duty, duty is always the right thing. Always serve your country or something greater than yourself rather than yourself. You know, pour yourself out for your family, pour yourself out for your community. That was kind of the the mystique or the, the culture of, of the post-World War II area in the United States, at least. And both my parents, you know, through their different paths, um, joined the, the big social movement that in some ways has been called the hippie movement and whatnot. And so they both left the East Coast and moved into the middle of the country to Boulder, Colorado, in a kind of a hippie enclave. And then at late 60s, early 70s there and um, kind of rejected the, the way of life of pursuing the professionals, you know, political pathways and all of that that my family had done in the past. And, and they set out to kind of really... Uh, commit their lives to a spiritual path instead in that, that social consciousness awareness movement. And um, I was raised in a little tiny home church uh, that was actually started by a bunch of teamsters out of Detroit, Michigan, which is one of our steel town car automotive uh, industry hubs in the United States. And these guys started a little home church as an outreach to hippies that they were concerned were going to be the death of our country because they didn't seem to be motivated. They didn't seem to have any sense of morals. So they started this little home church to try to get hippies off the streets and stop doing drugs and, and find Jesus. So that was my parents, uh, my dad in particular, finding himself into that church. And then um, he had his Jesus moment the very first night he went there and and uh, then met my mom a couple weeks later, and they both became part of that church, and they ended up you know, helping lead that church for 30 years. And so um, that became you know, a real spiritual community for me that you know, I think definitely allowed me to continue to, to push my own boundaries or at least accept that there was some sort of divine mm. you know, substructure sub or superstructure to my life as a human being. And certainly my work in the Philippines, I think— Double down on that, and I did a lot of missions work down in in the uh, Mexico area, Central America, and stuff like that during high school, college as well. So I, I got to see a lot of you know the 
you know, spiritual environment that that was copped in kind of the religious trappings. And the longer you spend in missionary environments, the more you're able to see, I think, the shortcomings of religious <laughs> constructs rather than perhaps their, their their capacity for salvation. But despite the religious limitations to the human constructs that we put around our spirituality, it kept me in a space where I was willing to consider a, a larger possibility than the life in, that I could see in front of me. I know, Zach, you've spent quite a bit of time working with the dying. What have you learned about living whilst working with the dying? Yeah, I, uh, my third subspecialty was in hospice and palliative care, and I was an associate medical director for four years for a hospice organization. And my team of you know, 25 uh, included nurses and chaplains and you know energy therapists and acupuncturists, a you know, really cool integrative team, which is the first time I'd been able to work with an integrative team. Uh, when you're working in the hospitals, you're simply kind of, it's you and the rest of the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> working to try to patch things up. So hospice was an awesome transition for me. It was after I left academia. I did my hospice subspecialty outside of academia um, with this hospice group and really got to work with an integrative team that was freed up from kind of the confines of the marbled halls of academia and was really a real world application of how do we care for people. And that felt so refreshing, you know, to me in those years to, to be in that space. But we were admitting, you know, 80 patients a week um, to our, our single service, and there were six services, you know, within our organization. So we were, you know, there were a lot of death and dying that you see over the course of four years at that kind of pace. And your question is, you know, very well asked in that, you know, the best learning grounds, I think, for anything is uh, when when that thing comes to an end. <laughs> and so the, the, the best way to reflect on how, how the you know, you don't know who wins the soccer game until the last second of it, I think, you know, and so in the same way, you don't know um, who's going to, you know, complete the, the cycle and circle of life until those last few seconds. And unfortunately, in the hospital setting, it was very rare that I got to see a healthy death in that the person was actually awake and not drugged into a coma. And uh, you know, able to talk and not on a respirator and things like this. So as I started to get to see patients who had returned home to live live out this last chapter of their lives, I got to hear a lot more from patients of what this experience is like as you start to look, let go of the body and the frailty and limitations of the human mind. What does it feel like to become alive there in that last chapter? And it was beautiful to witness and learn from this this really incredible reality that we are all capable of so much more life when we stop clinging to it. Mm. And so this is really the secret of life. I think in the end is, you know, when you start to deal in the realm of miracles and as Einstein said so well, there's only two options. Either you have to believe everything is a miracle or you have to believe nothing is a miracle. Mm. You can't pick and choose that. Oh, everything is runs on a mechanical world and is outside of our realm of control or everything is miraculous you can't pick and choose and i think as you get around death and dying you realize everything is miraculous and i certainly saw that on the other side of the the bookends of life when i was working with the midwives in the philippines of you can't watch a child's birth and and not believe in miracles mm. the complexity of an infant coming out of the womb perfectly knit together 
defies all logic, defies all mathematical likelihoods that this thing emerges again and again in this exquisite design such that it would bring about the incredible combination of a body capable of resonating in an energy field that we would call a soul and then a mind that would be able to translate that into some sort of human expression of, of this ancient entity that leaps into the world through the belly of a woman, through the you know birth canal, out, out through that vaginal canal into the world around it to, to be witness to what nature has done around it and to be a part of that integrated nature, uh, that child, that is too miraculous. Mm. And in the same vein, as you see people crossing the veil at the end of life, you start to get a glimpse of how miraculous their life is because they get to cross for a moment in their semi-conscious state mm-hmm. and have conversations with all of their relatives, yeah. their their ancestors, and they have conversations with future self and come back into the mind suddenly and they're talking to you about the conversation they just had with their mother who passed away 35 years ago. You know, and they, they are able to, to completely erase that confines of the... the time space continuum that we seem to be limited to in this third dimension of, of our current human existence or our sense of human reality. And so whether it be the child entering from some other realm into the body or that, that elder starting to cross that veil again, you realize, my God, life is bookended by these miraculous transformation events that we can only call birth Mm -hmm. that we can only, only call, you know, expansion. What did we do between those two bookends? If we spent the whole time between those two bookends being reductionist about our beliefs of who we are and what we're capable of and living by a series of, you know, regulations of self, self-imposed insecurities or responsibilities or duties, we realize that life is explosive in its beauty and miracle. And then we suppress it and we keep it under a wet blanket for 80 years. And then we take off the blanket and at the end be like, Oh my God, the whole thing was beautiful. How did I miss that? You know? And I've heard too often at bedsides, I spent all, all my life with the wrong people. I didn't actually look for true friends. I didn't actually know how to be a true friend. I spent my years working for things I didn't care about instead of spending time with my children or grandchildren. I spent too much time, you know, worrying about myself rather than understanding how to see other people. And so there's too many times that I've sat at bedsides with people, you know, realizing that they, they had missed the whole miracle of life for decades. And so it made me really eager to find in myself a way of being that would not cling to life itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been blessed by an incredible group of integrative practitioners around me that helped me run my clinics and all that over the years. And I feel like I was really the first patient to be healed and maybe the first human to be birthed out of my clinic system because I was so in need of my own medicine. I was so in need of the opportunity to expand and let go of my sense of duty to my patients, my sense of responsibility for preserving life as a doctor, my sense of, you know, uh, fear of death. I needed to let go of all of that. And I was very blessed to, to have, be surrounded by people that were willing to, to support me while I went through intense deconstruction events. And, and life will definitely throw you whatever you need to deconstruct whatever it is that's in your, in your path that needs to be removed for you to, to live your highest vibration. And I think ultimately the prayer that we could all utter today is I am willing. Yeah. I am. I am here. I am willing. I'm willing to be me. 
I'm willing to vibrate at my highest vibration. And if you're really willing to do that, you're going to have to let go of the facade that you've put up of who you are. You're going to have to let go of the facade of relationships that aren't good for you, that are codependent for you or whatnot. You're going to have to really let go of what it is that you've built for yourself. Then you're going to have to allow that deconstruction to start to happen so that you can be you. Mm. And when you do, it's amazing the rebirth process that can happen in your body. You don't have to wait till the grave to let go of all the fears and insecurities and self-doubt that has put the wet blanket on the miracle that you're here right now. And that's the journey that I think I've been on for the last 12, 14 years. And I think it's the journey that each of us are on. And I'm excited to say that I think it's accelerating. I think what we're seeing these last couple of years is a pressure cooker that's forcing us to make these changes. I absolutely agree. And I know for myself, that saying of being reborn again in the same life as what happened with me. And it, it, it can be a very sticky, messy situation. I was just actually talking about it with someone yesterday. When you feel like you're moving on to another path and you're, you're leaping into the unknown, but you're holding on to areas of the known because they're familiar. And even though you don't like them, it's just, it's the known, it's comfortable, it's safe. But it's when you completely let go that doors start opening and things start changing and it can seem a little messy at the start. It comes to this kind of crescendo and then it, everything, like everything you've ever wanted is there and it's always there, but you need to be allowing of it to come in. And I think your message is really important. And one thing that you do say, Zach, is that the body is equipped to repair itself from disease and it fundamentally can heal itself constantly. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of routes into discovering this. Uh, one of them you can do by studying the human body, but the other you can just do by, you know, growing crops and being a farmer or simply being a, an adventurer in nature and watching seasons happen. Uh, the rebirth process is an inherent part of being alive. Every single cell in your body, every single you know, cell and of the microbes within the soil, every single earthworm, you know, beneath your feet, that whole ecology of life is rebuilding and rebirthing itself constantly. And we do this through, you know, short-term repair mechanisms, but we do this more profoundly using stem cells and the like. And stem cells are such an interesting phenomenon in that they are this potential for life, but they don't have their own internal drive for it. They have to understand their role within the symphony. They need to be called into action to do their work. And so I get really amazed in our laboratory, uh, in my basic science lab that I run here in Virginia. We get to watch stem cells come out of seemingly the vacuum space. We can use like cadaver kidneys uh, that have no stem cells detectable in them. And then we can put them into a matrix of communication made by bacteria and fungi and really, you know, structured water. And between those two events, we can bathe that kidney in an environment where it realizes that it needs to, to build a new kidney. And suddenly that kidney starts to express stem cells and stem cells start to express new kidney. And this birth process happens in a Petri dish from my kidney that died, you know, 15 years ago and has been frozen. And so I get so fascinated by the potential of life that is within every cell of, of the, the body to call out for this spontaneous event of rebirth. Stem cells are chock full in every organ system that we have. My grandmother died at, my great grandmother died at 100, 101, 102, somewhere right in there. And 
every single organ in her body at 102 years old had all of the capacity to rebirth itself as if new. And yet it wasn't because of the aging process. The aging process is one of a loss of communication. And that loss of communication is the result of decreased light energy being released within the cells and dehydration. And so amazingly, those two things, a loss of communication and a lack of water, are really what drives the failure of the rebirth event within our bodies on a daily basis. And so our clinic has organized you know, itself for the last 12 years around the, the idea of how do we increase the amount of light energy in a human body? And interestingly, the best way to do that is through nutrition and movement, including breath work. And so exercise changes in your breathing patterns and the nutrition is has incredible synergy in your capacity to release the amount of light energy that you hold within the water structure of your cells of your body. And so I've gone from chemotherapy investigator in academia at UVA to, I think, a light worker inside of the cells of my patients today, because I'm, I'm always working to try to understand what are the dynamics that have put your lights out? How do we turn you back on literally as a human being? How do we get you plugged back into the circuit of life? And the amount of chronic fatigue, chronic pain syndromes, autoimmune disease, which is your body destroying itself through the immune system, the amount of cancer, which is your body becoming so isolated that it forgets, cells forget that it's part of the bigger organism. And so it starts to, to divide without control because it thinks it's the last semblance of life on the planet. And so it's isolation and a loss of communication and dehydration, the lack of ability to carry light energy within your body that accelerates our, our likelihood of death. And when we look at the last two years of this pandemic, uh, we, we can realize that while many people seem to adopt you know, a physiologic expression of this virus and had a syndrome of fever and some other symptoms of shortness of breath and cough and fever and whatever it is, they ultimately go and you know, cure that. That condition only lasts for a few days or a week or two. And then weeks later, we find out that, oh, their body's still cascading downwards and they're declining and they're going to die or they recover fully and they, they don't. The failure to recover from the simple stimulus of a virus is indicative of failure of that light energy within the human being. And so what we're seeing is all of humanity right now is getting the lights put out. We are losing our connectivity to nature and our natural capacity for light light transmission and light release within the body. And we are ultimately becoming dehydrated. So this, this accelerated aging process that we see expressed as a chronic disease epidemic of obesity, diabetes, autoimmune disease, environmental sensitivities, cancer, neurologic conditions with autism in our children, attention deficit disorder in our older kids, neurologic conditions of major depression, anxiety, sleep disorder, sex drive, failures, you know, lack infertility, cancer. I mean, this is all of these conditions have gone epidemic, have gone completely pandemic in their impact over such a short period of time. None of these were, were at the scale of problem that they were in 1996. And here we are, you know, just, just a few decades later, just mired in the cost and, and loss of life from these conditions that literally were, were hardly even described, uh, you know, 25 years ago. And so I get, you know, this sense of urgency of like, wow, we've got to, we've got to really accelerate our education awareness of this simple message that we have got to get plugged back in. We've got to light up as a species again, because our lights are going out and our, and our termination 
can be predicted. It looks like we have 80 to 100 years left before we go extinct as a species at our current rate of infertility, coupled with our, our speed of, of chronic disease acquisition, coupled with the death of our soils, the death of the bees, you know, our entire food production system. And so we are seeing the collapse of biology on a systemic level at both the planetary and human levels due to the same reason. We became detached and saw ourselves as oppositional to nature. And in that isolation as a human species, we are dying and we are killing the planet in our fear and desperation. Zach, you say that nature is not against us. It is our creator. Why is our relationship with the land so important? Yeah, this is really relatively new science, although very old observation. You know, I think if you go to any indigenous people, there was a knowingness that we are all one. There was a knowingness in every indigenous culture out there that... Uh, nature was an expression of the divine and we were part of that and the sunset and the sunrise uh, my light's changing quickly here right now as the sun is setting in, in the eastern part of the united states here and as that sun is setting it's it's you know moving through your sky in a different fashion but it's the same sun and uh, the idea that we are all connected by the energy from that sun to our soils, to our plants that would then be reignited within our bodies into sunshine that we would then channel into our rebirth on a daily basis to be regenerative, to, to get those cells to talk, to get those stem cells invigorated. That used to be an indigenous knowing that used to be an intrinsic knowing within us. And I think we lost that as we started to, to believe in scarcity. And, you know, over the decades and centuries before us, we have increasingly written our way out of nature. And uh, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it's most profound. It says that nature is defined as everything in the world, including landscapes, minerals, plants, animals, everything as opposed to humans or anything humans have created. And mm. so we literally not only wrote ourselves out of nature, we put ourselves in opposition to that nature. And so it's just a really deep schism in our philosophy as humans that somehow we're separate from this beauty around us. Somehow we're separate from the nature. And as soon as you see yourself separate from and therefore not nurtured or cared for by that nature, it develop, you develop this scarcity fear. And, you're, and you start to look around and feel like, oh, my God, I need, I need more food. What if there's no food tomorrow? What if there's a storm tomorrow? What if there's – and so we get into this sense, oh, my gosh, well, that means I need to, I need to own a piece of land. And so we went from this sense of nature is taking care of us, and, and which works really well for indigenous cultures. I was just down with the Ochoar the tribe. They were the, the most recent tribe to be integrated or contacted by civil, what we call modern civilization. They had been living untouched and unchanged in the, the northern part of the Amazon rainforest for 40,000 years. Mm. Same kind of history as the aboriginal people there in Australia. And so 40, 50,000 year histories of oral tradition and passing on wisdom, and they were sustainable. They, were, mm. they didn't do any damage to their environment. Their environment's been feeding them. My favorite thing about living with the Oshawa tribe for a week and a half was that I realized that they had no storage environments. They, 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 there was no refrigerator. There was no need for cupboards because they simply got up every morning, walked out into the rainforest and collected whatever food was available. And they'd come home and they would spend a community day preparing that food, sharing that food, being nurtured by nature and community. And so for 40,000 years, they've had this sense of plenty and they've never worried about oh, what, what about next year. And so that if you ask them, what piece of land do you own? They're like, we don't have to own anything. And the, the rainforest is our home. 
they and they they tell you that when you arrive welcome home this is your home you know they they're excited to show you the home they're excited to show you the beauty in it and the animals in there and the plants in there and so in our you know western civilization slash you know modern civilization era i think that we increasingly engineered ourselves out of nature and in our fear that then came out of the fact that maybe we wouldn't be provided for by this nature or this God that wouldn't create such a nature. We developed a sense of ownership or the need for ownership. And as you start to own things, they quickly own you. And now the cost of maintaining the things you own is more than you can actually produce on your own. So you have to tap somehow into slavery. You have to somehow extract productivity and wealth from some other people that you probably have never met so that you can live the lifestyle you live. Mm. And so now there's slave labor in Sri Lanka or someplace, some tiny village somewhere halfway around the world so that you can have a t-shirt that costs $4 and 99 cents. And that's a subsidized slave labor that you can't recognize because the supply chains are so long, but, and you have no sense of it, but you need it. You know, you need a shirt because nature's not going to provide you a shirt. So you need the shirt. And so it's this insidious pathway of separation that leads to the deep humanitarian abuses that lead to the deep extractive, you know, natural resource destruction that we uh, carry out as a species. And got 97% of the arable lands on the planet now depleted or severely depleted. In the United States, we're losing two tons of topsoil to erosion every year for every acre of land that's under farming agricultural practices. And so that's 11% of our GDP in soil resources is being washed out into oceans every year. It's trillions and trillions of dollars that are bleeding off of this country because of an extractive mentality about food systems and about food energy. And, and you know, it, it's so extraordinary in its scale. And yet it maps back to a very simple lesion that we all carry within us. We are separate from nature. Therefore, we need to own things. Therefore, we need to grab more resources. We are not cared for by the divine. We are not provided for by nature. We, are, we can't be nurtured by nature. Nature must be against us. And so it's in that state of fear and reactivity that we behave like we do. And never before have we had a bigger fear narrative of that nature than we have in the last two years. And we have been told that a single virus is here to wipe out humanity, to, is a pandemic. We had all these fear words baked into this process, and we reacted in such an interesting way that revealed our, our real belief of our nature, which is we retracted further from nature. Yeah. We all hid away in our homes, got away from the sun and the air that could have saved our lives by increasing the amount of vitamin D in our bloodstream. We, we got away from each other and we lost connectivity and that we let, we increased depression, anxiety disorders. We increased the amount of domestic violence and sexual abuse. We increased the amount of substance abuse and alcoholism and drug use. And it was just like, we blew up the whole thing, accelerated all of our, our drug pathways and accelerated all of our abusive tendencies in fear of an abstract, you know, narrative about a virus. And, and that's an extraordinary I think moment where we all suddenly realized, wow, we, we may be really, really off base. <laughs> and I think we're seeing this really exciting, you know, reaction to that two year period of people are starting to build community again. They're yes. leaving big cities, they're buying big pieces of property. They're moving four or five people there to start growing their own food. We've never seen such an incredible acceleration of the regenerative, you know, agricultural and soil movement than we have in the last two years. And so the silver lining of the crisis that we're in, the, separation from nature 
is that we are finding our way back to that nature. Zach, I totally agree. I think there's been a massive uprising and almost like an awakening. And it's unfortunately taken another dark night of the soul for that to happen. But as you were saying, that that is what, what occurs a lot of the time, either personally or on a mass scale. You mentioned to us about soil, and I, I want you to speak about how crops are grown. And I know it's extremely important. And I know at the moment here in Australia in May, we are launching Farmer's Footprint, which is all about the benefits of regenerative farming for longevity and health. Thank you. Yeah. Um, over the last 20 or 30 years of genetics research, we've discovered that we are all one. And so we have gotten ourselves back to that indigenous knowing that we're all connected through genetics research. Um, we used to believe that the human immune system was a thing and it was human. And we thought we had this like battleground of st- that's kept our body sterile and kept all the bacteria and fungi out of there. Uh, we believed that there were germs that were waiting to attack the body. And if our immune system failed and we ended up with bacteria in our bloodstreams or in an organ, we would die immediately. You know, our, our health would fail. We believed the same thing in the farming environment. We, we believed that, you know, other species competing for the nutrients of the soil for, against our corn would deplete our corn. So we decided, well, we should just disc up the entire, you know, 10,000 acres, we'll just plow that until there's nothing growing left. And then we'll plant our rows of corn and only the corn will get the nutrients and only the corn will get the water that's needed to grow. If we let weeds grow in there, if we let, you know, some sort of cover crop move in there, they're going to compete for nutrients. So this is the scarcity mentality of the farmer. And it also got put on the human. Oh my gosh, we need to beat back all the bacteria because Lord knows if that's in my system, it's going to decrease my health. It's going to steal resources from me. Oh, we need a war on cancer because if there's cancer cells in my body, they must be competing for limited resources and trying to kill me. So we should poison the body to try to kill kill the uh, cancer, or we should poison the farm fields with herbicides to try to kill the weeds. And so, in this you know belief system of life has to exist in a, a limited set of resources, we developed this monoculture effort. And so we were killing with herbicides, which are antibiotics, the soils, and we were eating you know, that herbicide and taking more antibiotics with every passing year. In the United States, we now prescribe over 7 million pounds of antibiotics a year to, wow. to every man, woman, and child in this country. Australia actually is just surpassing us in that number now <laughs> as far as per capita um, use. And uh, Germany was ahead of us for a while too. Um, so but that 7 million pounds of antibiotics used in humans from their doctors, that, that's about 833 prescriptions of antibiotics for every 1,000 men, women, and children every year. And so nearly every person in the country, 83% of the country is getting antibiotics you know, sometime in the year uh, by, by just sheer numbers. But that pales in comparison to the 30 million pounds, you know, 5x that, and you got the number of pounds of antibiotic poured into our soils. And, you, and then you have to multiply that again when you start to take into account the, the cattle and poultry and all the animals that go into our mm. food system and the amount of antibiotics that are poured into them. And so we have you know millions and millions and millions of pounds of antibiotic that go into the human experience every day, whether it be directly from our physicians or directly from our food chain. We are living a life of, of war against the microbiome. And as we get into genomics and we start to look at what a healthy body is, we have to redefine the immune system. It turns out that an immune system is an ecosystem, not an organ within a human. 
participate. And the immune system is a balanced relationship of millions of species of bacteria, fungi, protozoa, parasites that are in and around the human experience that are constantly talking back and forth with our vast microbiome of bacteria, fungi, protozoa that live inside of us. And our gut is the big, huge population. But it turns out that every organ in the body has its own healthy soil system of microbiology. My brain has bacteria, fungi, fungi, and um, uh, viruses that are constantly in there communicating for transmission of, of, you know, restoration, regeneration, you know, repair, all of this stuff going back and forth. And I'm dependent on that soil system of the microbes as much in the soil as I am in my own body. We're seeing now in, in genomics research that it is a continuum of, of ecosystem. The, the skin on my body carries this extraordinarily intelligent microbiome. The, the air that I breathe has this intelligent microbiome. And the more that I have in touch with each other, the more complexity of those ecosystems that are communicating among one another, the more resilient I am as a human body. And so it's exciting to realize we don't have a human immune system. We have an immune, we have an ecosystem of immunity, which is not a war on anything. Immunity is not, I am sterile. Immunity means I am balanced. And so we need to reconstruct our, our imagination of the human immune system of one of these you know, warfare type models to one of a symphony. It is a symphonic balance and a coordination of all of the sounds of nature coming to support human life. And that's how we came to be here. Mm. We came as mammals to come on this planet because of the highest imagination of the microbiome and the life on this planet and the way in which it communicated to bring us forward. The last great extinction happened over months or years under the, the sudden death of the topsoils from, from an asteroid that hit. Today, we are the cataclysmic asteroid on the planet, and we are killing our topsoils over a short period of months or years through this chemical abuse of biodiversity and, and this intense chemical insult on life on, with beneath our feet. And the result is everybody's lights are going out. We are seeing the extinction of one species every 20 minutes now. And so this extreme rate, we've seen a 10,000 times increase in the rate of extinction of species over just the last 30 years. 10,000 times an increase in rate of extinction. And so we are in the sixth great extinction through the death of the topsoils, just as the last extinction occurred with death of the topsoils. We didn't learn our lesson through that science, and so we have to relive that. But we are conscious uh, community. We have these extraordinary intellects that are allowing us to develop fields of science that can start to understand the mechanisms of the death that we have planned for ourselves through this separation event of toxic soil abuse and the food systems at large. And so that means we can change our direction. We can fundamentally begin a rebirth of the earth that we would all like to see for our children and grandchildren and beyond if we begin to respect the reality that we are a global community, not of humans, but of life itself. We are part of a global life event that we call Earth. And if we can write ourselves back into nature, mm -hmm. I believe that we have all of the solutions at hand to see an explosion of life happen, an explosion of vitality within our children. But we're going to have to let them have enough space around their imagination. We need to push back the previous beliefs and mechanisms of industry, mechanism of professional development, push back the, the education that we've brainwashed ourselves with, push that back and start to ask these children, what is the world you imagine and how does it feel to be connected to nature to you? 
ideas come to you when you are out in the, in the woods, when you're swimming in the rivers again, when you're out in the ocean surfing, what is the world you would like to see? And that needs to be front and center of every dinner table in Australia, United States, Europe, Africa, South America. Everybody needs to be asking the children once we've given them a creative moment in which they are integrated back into their natural setting of, of nature and its beauty and ask for their imagination to bring us forward. Because I'm afraid that those of us that have created the current paradigm are having too slow of a transformation to really be the solution. At best, I think we can be part of the support. Mm-hmm. We can create a little bit of space. We can hit the brakes. And that's the golden lining of the, par- the pandemic. Is suddenly 7.9 billion people at the same time hit the brakes. And we proved that we could do that. Yes. We'd been told for decades, so you can't change the, the energy industry or the transportation industry or the IT industry. They're just like, they're such big industries that they just have all this momentum. You can't stop those. And everything stopped overnight. In a two-week period, two years ago, everything stopped. And we did that together. And so if we stop the fear and stop instead for hope, I think we could take that pause, that meditative experience as a species to allow the creative juices of our children to start to show us a path forward where we reintegrate ourselves and our systems and our industries back into that natural setting. And we go from education to energy sectors. We go from IT technologies to uh, software, like software engineering. They're like all the way to farming. And we reinvent those in the context of natural systems. And we look at sociopolitical environments and we look at the, the polarization that we see in every political setting in the, in the world. We see the polarization within single families about their opinion about politics or social change or the, the virus or the vaccines or whatever polarizing event you put into the play. There's a way past that, that you know, juggernaut of belief that we are in opposition to one another and our nature. There's a path forward in which we see a co-creative possibility. And that's that's coming. I can feel it under the under the surfaces. I think you can and, and so many of us can. We've touched on fear a bit in this conversation and with everything going on at the moment with Russia and the Ukraine. And I was telling you before we started recording about there's devastating floods that are happening at the moment in northern New South Wales and Queensland, as well as everything that's happened with COVID and still is happening with COVID over the last few years. How do we find love at a time like this? And I know that you've had your own struggles with the concept of love, and I'd love you to talk to us a bit about that. Hmm. Yeah, um... The last time I was in Australia was right before, the, uh, right as the pandemic yeah. was breaking in China and all that. I was in Melbourne there, and um, it felt like a crystal ball moment. I was lecturing on you know the collapse of soil systems and the herbicides and the air, air pollution and how they carry stress and viruses around the world, and you know showed the mechanisms of pandemic basically in that that you know, four hour experience together in Melbourne, and you know within. Hours of that, you know, Melbourne started shutting down and there was early, you know, talks of, you know, masking and social distancing on that. And so by the second and third night that I was speaking in, in smaller groups, um, you know, people were canceling because they weren't sure if it was safe to gather. So we were right at that moment of really the fear infiltrating. 
And um, much of the conversation that I had you know, gone over there for was to talk about the devastating wildfires that you guys yeah. had just you know, come out of. And so to now see two years later devastating floods everywhere, um, I can say with great confidence that both of those are a direct result of soil management uh, over the last hundred years. And we saw the worst wildfire season we've seen ever at the end of 2020 into 2021 there in the United States. And so it's the whole industrialized world is starting to see the the fault lines, see the cracks in the the sidewalk here of, of the nature that we live within as we bring it to its brink of function and, and, and we bring it to the brink of this extinction event. And so we see uh, horrible you know, wildfires and flooding for the, the same reason. Both are the result of silting as we keep you know the, the land denuded and we desertify land that used to be covered in, in you know natural ground covers or, or forests or whatever. And as we denude those for agricultural purposes and we leave soil bare, killing it often with overplowing or overspraying of herbicides and pesticides as we kill that life within it, the soil loses all of its infrastructure and starts to wash out into river systems and out into oceans. So we change the dynamics of water, the water cycle on earth, which includes of course clouds and rain and all of that. So we create incredible droughts and we create incredible flooding as nature tries to redistribute a water system or we see the signs of a completely failed water cycle uh, between soil, air and, and rain. And so the, that cycle is breaking down globally now, and we're seeing wide-scale desertifications. We're you know, decades into one of the worst drought and length in California and the southern parts of the United States. Reservoirs are drying up. It's, it's stunning to see how fast we're le- losing the infrastructure of life, which is certainly fresh water and its cycling uh, capacity within our bodies and within our environments. And we're losing both, not surprisingly, because we really are both expressions of the same system of vitality or vulnerability. You have a really beautiful story that I'd love you to share on the podcast. And it's about when you found your own reason for what love truly is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's so, so intense to really get out this on a daily basis because it's so easy to forget. And I'm just really sharing with myself a moment of gratitude, looking out this window at the sunset so I can, so I feel like I'm connected to this story. <laughs> but um, what happened is that I had been you know, lecturing for some years um, and sharing with community and lots of every way I could think of as posing to the, to the global community or my community, what is love? Do we know what it is? Do we really know what I know you say that you're, you love your husband, you love your kids, you love this or that. And we use that term all the time. But if we really knew what love was, would we treat our planet this way? Would we treat each other this way? Would we have this level of dysfunction within society if we knew what it was? And so I kept this existential crisis within me of, I think I feel like I know what it feels to fall in love. I know that little tickly feeling. I think I know what it feels to, to be devoted to my children in love in, the, in an unconditional sense of the, the word. But then I look out into the environment and my relationship to nature as a species, and I realize I think we're missing it severely. We are so disconnected from this concept of love because I can prove it by our global behavior. 
and you know wars you know you mentioned ukraine and russia right now and all these levels of you know dysfunction i grew up through multiple wars and my brother was you know for years in the military and i watched him fight on the front lines over in iraq and I watched so much, you know, dysfunction within that environment and been going on for generations. My grandfather fought in World War II and in Korea and all over the world, you know, and, and it's like generation after generation, we are showing a real breakdown in our true understanding of love and, or we're failing in its expression, if nothing else. So I was struggling with this and communicated this broadly. And I think I was getting to a point in my life I'd gone through, um, you know, a big change in my life. I was married to an extraordinary woman for 20 years and our 18 years, 20 years with her. We had two incredible kids and we grew apart over that time. And uh, when she found her, her next partner and found an opportunity to really expand her life in a new direction, I went through an initial, you know, intense, really horrible, you know, crisis of heartbreak for myself personally. But then with, pretty quickly, I realized if I really love this person unconditionally, it's going to be exciting to support her. If this is really her path forward. And I say that I unconditionally love this person. Why would I put the condition of she needs to be with me into that scenario? And so I got this really cool moment to decide to support that situation rather than reject that situation or judge that situation. And it was deeply meaningful to watch that. And I was far from, from angelic in my effort to apply that, but it was enough of a spark to help me, realize there is a way towards human existence in the expression of love that's not limited to our constructs of marriage or our constructs of community participation or our constructs of that is my child, you know, this ownership kind of belief of one another. Those are not my children. Those are beings that came through an energetic sacred, you know, geometry of, of my wife's, energy and my energy and we combined energy for a period of time in which created a portal of life to come through but they were no more from her than they are from me these are entities that clearly have history long before i ever imagined myself as a human being and watching them grow into adulthood now and moving into their own relationships and marriages and everything else is there is no ownership there. There's nothing, there's nothing to be created, you know, from that, that human being to, to allow something as complex and miraculous as those children's and now adults lives are. And so I was struggling with this and one of my colleagues and, and close friends uh, was able to um, have an experience in a deep meditation event where he got a message for Zach and he came back from that and called me and said, you know, I got, I got a really clear message that um, you need to hear in person. And so it took me a, a month and a half or so to coordinate my travel schedules and get out to Utah to, to meet this guy up in the mountains and a beautiful brother. And he sat me down and, you know, said, you know, I've, I've been told to give you this message that the fabric of everything is not love. And I just got goosebumps all over my body because I had been been so fearful of our, our the fact that if everything was love, as John Lennon and everybody else seemed to agree, we must be so far from enlightenment because we, we are so distant from our ability to express it well. And even my journey out of marriage and into you know unconditional love for people around me and the effort towards that and then the failure of that and the doubt of myself, failure to love myself – how can I hope for any kind of spiritual stability or spiritual sense of, of reaching 
the divine if I don't even know what love is and I can't hold it if it's the fabric of everything. And so I knew the next sentence would change my life, and it, it has profoundly. He said that the fabric of everything is not love. The fabric of the universe is, in fact, beauty. And that experience of seeing beauty will create the experience of love. And I loved it for so many reasons. One, number one, I was so, I bawled immediately. I just cried so hard. I was just one of the biggest emotional releases I've had in my life. And I knew in that instant that we were so close to spiritual singularity, to this state that we might call an enlightened state as a species, because I knew that my children had never had to be told that that sunset that I'm watching right now is beautiful. They know that that is beautiful. They know what it feels like to see beauty. And they know that when they are out at a waterfall, nobody has to say, look at that. That is, that's beautiful. And that thing over there is not beautiful. That's, we never have to do that. Mm. There's an inherent knowledge of what the experience of witnessing beauty looks like. And we feel within us at that moment, the true state of love. It is not an emotion. It is a vibration that occurs when we witness beauty. And so if you feel unloved, it may be that you haven't given yourself enough breath, enough pause to look in the mirror or look through your life to recognize all the beauty. To fall in love with yourself is to see the beauty that is within you and has been wrought by the efforts of your hands and your mind. You are a beautiful being, and therefore you are deeply loved, not just by humans, you are loved by the plants around you. You are loved by the animals around you. You are loved by the earth beneath your feet. And we've begun to be able to prove that. Scientifically, we can put EKG-like monitors on plants and show what happens when a human shows itself to that plant. The plant reflects that back at us. The plant's joy and vibration increases and sends that back out to us. It's having an experience of love because it can see our beauty. It can feel our projection of love towards it. When we see the beauty of the plant, it responds with a higher vibration signal to us. And so across species, bacteria, fungi within your gut respond to the message that you are beautiful. Think about the fact that you're alive right now. It's freaking miraculous. It's mathematically impossible. You have 70 trillion cells that are working with 1.4 quadrillion bacteria that are working with 14 quadrillion mitochondria inside your cells to create life within you. You are a whole universe packed into this little you know, one, one cubic meter of space and you're packed in there in an, a state of intelligence that's capable of imagining a divine state of source for the universe. Whether you agree with this conversation or you agree with me about the existence of God, not God, universe, not universe, flat earth, round earth, I don't care what, what you agree with with me, but you are alive. And so I can prove to you that there is a high amount of syntropy, which is the opposite of entropy. Entropy is a description of chaos in physics. You are the opposite of chaos. You are an incredibly organized event that's happening out of an apparent chaos of astrophysics and, and you know, planetary physics and biophysics. You are resulting from all of that chaotic vibration and you are organized. You are an organized phenomenon that we call human life. And so you are vibrating with all of this vitality within you, with all this life within you, you are vibrating and therefore alive for a moment. And so you're given this opportunity to vibrate in the beauty of nature. And as you watch that sunset tonight, or you watch that sunrise tomorrow morning, I want you to take those few breaths and give homage to the beauty. 
and feel what that feels like. Because if you think that you don't know how to love or you think you've never been loved, sit long enough with that sunset or that sunrise and you'll feel like you've been reconnected. You will experience love for the beauty of the universe. You can experience that universe loving you back because it can see you because that sunlight is reflecting off of your face to create the geometry, to create the fracture fractions of light that would reflect back off of you, back to your nature, your vibrations like a sun in and of itself, because that's what you are as you eat food and you breathe, you, you release light energy, you release the solar energy that you consumed in your food and that you now breathe out into the world around you. You are a sunset. You are the sunrise of tomorrow. You have all of that beauty within you that nature has intended you to play in the cycle of life and you give it forth and you, you absorb it. You give it forth and you absorb it. You're part of the carbon cycle. You're part of the water cycle. You're part of the life cycle on earth. And so for that, you participate in a grand experiment of beauty that is working towards a higher and higher expression of intelligence and connectedness and consciousness of the divine, which is to say all things. You are connected to all things, and you know this better than the dinosaurs knew this. The dinosaurs existed in nature, and they were had no sense of separation from it. And interestingly, I believe it took this consciousness leap of the mammal brain into the homo sapien. Certainly the whale and the, and the dolphin don't wonder about whether they're being a good enough dolphin today. We had to get to a certain level of intelligence with these five senses that are so dominant in our experience to start to believe that we were separate from nature. But in our separateness to nature, where we currently stand today, I think we have a unique opportunity to witness the beauty of nature as we recombine with it. And so just as we find out, as we fear death all of our lives and we separate ourselves from death and we try to push death back, in the moment that we welcome death in and we finally surrender our bodies and minds to the ethos and to the, you know, etheric quality of, of the universe around us, as we let go of all of that, we will see life rebirthed within us in those moments. And so in the same way, our species at this moment of our extinction, as we look back to a nature that we thought we were separated from and we were in fear of and we were pushing back, as we welcome that back in, we could start the most intense love affair of human history and perhaps planetary history because it's a reunion. The separation perhaps will make our hearts fonder and perhaps the separation will induce a certain knowingness that we can actually be co-creators with that nature mm -hmm. rather than just you know recipients of her. We could become that species that births with this planet, the most vibrant, vital ecosystems and food systems and biodiversity that the planet has ever seen. The genomic intelligence is certainly there. The virome, the viruses out there is the data bank of genetic possibility. Viruses are the, the database of genetic possibility of the future. And that virome, the collection of all that genetic information born out of the stress of every organism on the planet from the last great extinction did not allow life to struggle back to, to reproduce the dinosaurs. Instead, we went from reptiles to birds to mammals, humans. We went from ferns to flowering plants, deciduous trees. We birthed so much more biodiversity out of the virome and this new potential for life that was born out of stress and dying of organisms on earth.
they sent out a massive amount of genomic opportunity and life took advantage of that here on earth. And we moved forward dramatically in the amount of biodiversity and intelligence and beauty expressed in the nature on this planet through that extinction event. We're in the middle of the sixth grade extinction. And if we wake up right now and we stop our behavior and the soils come back to life, it may not take millions of years for this earth to struggle back from the sixth extinction as it has in the past. It could happen nearly overnight. Over the next 200 years, we could see the most vital soil that this planet has ever supported because we are smart enough to know how to co-create and accelerate her repair processes. We have all the science in place. We know what regenerative agriculture looks like. We know what the impact of biodiversity is on soil systems and therefore on food systems. We know what it's like to create energy out of, out of renewable sources. We now understand how to change hydrogen from one state to another to release, release free energy for everybody. We are just a few moments away from doing the right things on this planet. And each one of us has the opportunity to be participating in that. And to do that, you're going to have to decide in your mind that you're not separate from nature, that you are part of the beauty of nature. And in your recognition of her beauty, she will see you and a love affair will ignite within you uh, to, that will reignite your sense of purpose, your sense of being alive. And you will rush out to help your friends who are suffering from great drowning floods and from fires and from great disasters. And you will scoop them up and say, let's work together to to rebuild a, a different form of society, a different form of community. And it's going to keep happening if, you know, if we don't come in line with it. Nature has all of the checks and balances mm -hmm. to place to wipe us off the face of the planet. If we're against life on Earth, the Earth has no choice but to eliminate us. If we align ourselves with life on Earth, we will be scooped up in this incredible regenerative energy in it that is really, a, in my experience, a profound demonstration of the whole concept of grace. Mother Earth is full of grace for you and me and all of our human mistakes, all of our human errors. They took us to a point of understanding the frailty of the human mind and the resiliency of the human spirit. Zach, what is your favorite prayer? That's interesting. I think I would have had a quick answer to that a few years ago. In recent years, though, I've started to realize that my prayer life was, was very projected <laughs> and I wasn't listening. And so instead of praying these days, I spend a lot more time in meditation and just silence mm -hmm. to listen. And I find out I learn much more and I progress much more quickly. And I come face to face with myself in much more profound deconstructive ways and ultimately reconstructive ways. If I sit in silence and listen, uh, ultimately I find myself quicker if I ask for the answer rather than make requests to the world. Um, and I feel peaceful these days. I'm in, in a very wonderful place in my life where I've realized that I, I know nothing. I, I, I don't do anything that helps anybody. But in my being me, I become really profoundly powerful at manifesting stuff around myself. And I do that most of all in evidence of relationships. The amount of business relationships and personal relationships that I am able to support today are logarithmically, you know, higher in number since I stopped trying to do things and mm -hmm. I just started being me. And every conversation I have holds space for the divine to speak through me to you, Sarah, or to the community that you hold there in Australia. And we create a dynamic sacred geometry between the two of us 
posed, you know, 12,000 miles apart or something ridiculous on both sides of that planet. We, we, we hold space that resonates with the same spirit, with the same hope, with the same mission to bring unity to a fractured and polarized humanity, to a, a species fractured and polarized from its own nature. And so in our moments of silence between our words in the moments of rest between our thoughts that can be so racing and all consuming, listen, take advantage of the silence that you'll find out in those vast spaces of the Australian deserts. Nature will tell you how to get back in touch. Nature will actually scoop you right back into her womb and rebirth you quick. If you take the time to listen and be still. Zach, what's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? I think if I answered that, everything else that I've said in the last hour would <laughs> have to be discarded. <laughs> um, I've had some strange experiences in the recent years. I, I, you know, over the last you know twelve years since leaving, you know, I think it's been a trust fall. I, I left academia terrified. I was so scared to start my first business. And now I have a dozen companies and nonprofits and all this stuff running around me. And it's not because I created them. It's because great people started to vibrate to the same mm. understanding and vision that I, I was being given by the divine. And um, I'm really happy to be a tuning fork these days and stand still and feel that vibration, tune the, tune the symphony of human purpose and, and soul purpose in so many around me now. And so I think that, you know, as I come into this realization that each human body is animated by a light being that is an ancient soul, then the human experience has become much more mystical. And no longer do I believe that I sit down at, at board meeting tables with a bunch of humans. I remember that I'm sitting in a space that holds my soul in sacred geometry with 12 other people or 200 people out, out at a talk or 4,000 people at that convention or whatever it is. It's not a bunch of people getting together. It's a bunch of souls animating bodies that would come into proximity for human agenda and all these things. But the real magic and the mystical experience is actually happening at this much higher realm of vibration or existence of energy centers that do not dissipate. A soul is this intense, you know, light energy source that animates these human bodies. And when you watch death and dying enough times, you realize that the body is not the, the house for the life. The body is momentarily animated by that thing, but that thing departs and you can feel the departure. It's not like the soul slowly dies out. It's a split second. The person's on a ventilator. You're watching the heartbeat. You're watching this, that you're watching the body. The heart may stop. Okay. You can still see life. There's still some breaths happening. There's this, that there's still some brain activity. All right. There's that. And then suddenly life is gone from that organism. It doesn't seem to have much to do with the heartbeat or the brain activity or anything else. You can watch the body be vacated by this energy source. And it was you know, one of the, the cracks in the, in the facade of control of Western medicine is the reality that the ICUs in, in the United States are designed to have windows that open. All of the other you know, windows in the hospital are, are not able to open. And I was stunned when a nurse happened to tell me why she was opening the window in the ICU when my patient just passed before me. Um, she walked over and opened the window. I didn't know the window could open. She cracked it open. I was like, what's that for? And she said, that's so that the soul can leave. Mm -hmm. 
I was so stunned that medicine has remained enough aware of its mystical reality that it's designed windows and ice used to be opened with the idea and reverence that mm. a soul should escape that man-made castle of a, of a hospital disease management system. And it stuck in my mind to give me hope that we aren't completely lost. If we would design hospitals that would let the soul out, uh, then we haven't completely missed the mystery of life itself. And so that's the most mystical thing experience that I have, I think, on a daily basis is being around other souls that I now understand are doing things that I can't imagine for purposes much grander than I can conceive of as a human being. So now I start companies and nonprofits in order to collect and organize the geometry of souls to do a work that I can't imagine. And so the mystical magic that I get to participate in is the dance of light energy within the universe in these in these ancient centers that we would call souls or or energy centers that we would call you know stars you know and we are in the dance with the galactic world black holes galaxies solar system that's all happening inside of our bodies every single proton within every single atom within the billions of atoms within every single cell you are galactic in scale and there are black holes and there are universes within you that are communicating with the black holes in the center of the galaxy and everywhere else out on the macro level. We are a continuum of vibrational energy and information from the universe and we are expressing our own version of beauty. And so I would ask that each of you take enough pause to recognize the reality around you is much grander than what your eyes and your frail human senses can can describe or to, can present to you and to find out just how beautiful and, and magnificent that bigger reality is. I would encourage you to let go of your senses and start to feel a new place, feel the, the area between your throat and your floor of your pelvis feel within that vessel, because that is a column of water. That is a perfect vibrational chamber. It's been designed the shape of the thorax, the shape of the pelvis, the shape of your hard palate, to be an echo chamber of information and information can stream into that body and then become coherent or incoherent in that space of your thorax from your neck down to the floor of the pelvis. There is another sense that you have within you. And I would say that is your soul sense. That soul sense within you will tell you when you are in coherence with your real purpose. Mm. And it feels good to be there. It feels like if you need a, a reference point, it feels like being home. What is a life of greatness to you? Ultimately, you know, we are in an infinite game. We are ancient beings that have showed up to animate these human bodies for a moment. And I think our greatness is reflected in the opportunity to step into our highest purpose when we're in these bodies, which is to enjoy the finite when you're an infinite being and you have no body, imagine yourself uh, an epicenter of energy that's departed a human body for a moment is now floating out in the ethers and maybe back into the universe at large. You're no longer tethered to some sort of physical structure. You are free to move and explore the galaxies and move. And I've had patients tell me all of the, the galaxies they've traveled in those new year death experiences, what planets they went and visited in some far off galaxy, what species they talk to and, you know, extraterrestrials, the whole thing. I've heard so many of these crazy stories when people cross that veil and their soul departs from the body for a moment and then decides to return to express something of beauty, a 
of what they just saw on the other side of the veil. So I believe that a life well lived is to understand why we would be signing up to be in a frail, limited, vulnerable human body. Why the hell would you do that? If you are an infinite being that has been here since the beginning and origins of our universe, or maybe before that, beginning of time itself, why would you sign up for the self-abuse and destructive behavior and everything else that you've expressed in your life as a human being? Why would you do that? It's because when you live a finite life, you get to see beauty through a different lens. And so I think the life well lived is the one that enjoys the finite moments of being witness to infinite beauty. And in that, we live the best life. And we will feel like we are renewed and a new child every moment when we start to witness, be witness to, with a sense of security, with a sense of purpose, be silent and witness the plant, witness the the sunrise, witness the steam off the top of your tea in the morning, witness the way in which light shines through the hair of your lover across the, that, that table. There is so much beauty to be witnessed. It's stunning. I love the way in which light is reflecting off you, Sarah, and the windows behind you. It looks like you're in a star field there or something like that. It looks like maybe you're on the, the deck of the Enterprise or something out space traveling uh, to go explore the next next frontier for humanity. But I love the beauty that you hold as a human being. I love the way in which your voice sounds when it travels 12,000 miles to speak to me. I love the way in which you look at me with intent and with a, as if you can see me. And that's a miracle because this is a stupid laptop I'm looking at right now that doesn't seem to have any life within it. And uh, this is some sort of funky camera thing looking at me as if it's a dead, dead eyeball. And yet you are looking through all of that contraption out of some sort of reverence for some sort of beauty that you saw in me and invited me to your show. That's freaking amazing. That's amazing that you can see my beauty from that far away through that many lenses, through that many digital interfaces. You can still see my beauty and I can hear and see your beauty in the way in which you interact with your community, the way in which you bring all of us into conversation, thousands of us listening to each other right now because of your love for your country, for your love of your people, for your love of your planet. You do this. You get up every morning and do this. It's a pain in the ass. Producing anything is a pain in the ass. And here you are doing it out of love. And I believe that love is being engendered and experienced by you because you can see the beauty around you. And I'm excited to be in community with you, each of you. It is a precious thing to be alive. And the highest life we can live is to enjoy the finite beauties that we can share together. And don't forget to remind each other of the beauty you saw today. Sit there at night around the dinner table and tell each other what kind of beauty you saw today. Turn off the television, turn off the news feeds, and look to the beauty and you'll find a path forward. And it's happening. It's happening all over the planet. Russia attacks Ukraine, and Russians are standing up to protest this in the streets of a country that has never seen their government challenged when it comes to national security or the advancement of of their national intent expressed to their military. There is a new chapter arising. We are all feeling it, that we need a new chapter. We need new hope. We need to understand that we're all humans and we're on a frail planet that's dying and where our lights are going out if we continue. And so I'm grateful to you, Sarah, for your beauty that you express. 
I'm grateful for the soul that is within you that knows your great purpose in bringing all of us into sacred relationship through this podcast, through this long form conversation. You create a constellation of souls of our awareness at this moment as we are all brought together, focused on one tuning fork to say, here's the A and the orchestra is tuning up and the symphony will be played and it's going to be beautiful. I'm glad to be part of it with you. Zach Bush, I just want to give you a big hug. Thank you so much. And you, uh, honestly, I mean, I've I've listened to a lot of your work. I've read a lot of things that you've done and you are such a truth teller. You are, like, really, it takes a lot of courage and and you have just changed so many people's lives and I am so grateful for that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's an, it was an absolute pleasure. Beautiful. Pleasure to be with you, Sarah. Thank you for the global community that's joined with us here and the invisible ethers of technology. I, I wish you all well tonight. I recognize the beauty within each of you and I'm grateful to be part of all that. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.